You're listening to an L.A. Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit lakings.com slash podcast. All right, Jim, I shaved for the first time in four days, and it was weird. It was it was okay to just like you know let it go, and then I shaved for the first time, and it's it's just wow. It's I I didn't remember what it was like almost to to be clean shaven and halfway presentable. I don't know about you. Yeah, I've been I've been I've been doing the same type of thing. You know, every two or three days, four days, depending on what's going on. Uh, of course, with the with the virtual games we've been doing, you know, have to get on camera, so that kind of makes the shave necessary. <laughs> Although I've uh, seen my partner unshaven on those. Uh, so, you know, just, just trying to keep it clean as possible. What is the longest you've been without shaving? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say probably about three weeks. That's a while ago now, but that's, that's a while ago because that's when after three weeks it came in normal color and not white. So now that <laughs> it comes in white, I uh, stay away from that. What's that? Was that in the playoff run where, where you were growing it out? Nah, the- not really. Unfortunately, when I was in the playoffs. Oh, you know what? We did. We did do the uh, 12, right? Yeah. And I, I was like right up. I was like tops in the league <laughs> for raising money. So that was good. But that's great. Yeah. Even back then, it was less gray and more natural. Mm. Now it's more white. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I assume that both of us have been doing a lot of uh, just TV watching and, and trying to keep to ourselves a little bit here. I, got, I have to know, what are you watching right now? I'm watching right now a rerun, and I just finished it last night, of the first series of Deadwood. Yeah. And I don't know if you're familiar with that series. Oh, I've never heard of it. It went away after about three years, and it seemed, I think they came back and did a movie. But... It sounded like to me, or what I can remember, it was, uh, you know, the cast was in some type of contractual issues. It was an HBO series. It was about uh, just the new settlement starting up in the territories before the United, before, I think it was in the Dakotas, before they came, you know, actual states and they were just territories and very, very rough language, very rough, as rough as you've seen. But I think that the characters and the development and, again, a little bit of history, much like I like historical novels and reading. It's a, it's, a, it's a TV series that brings you back to the Old West, so to speak, and how people had to, you know, when you're just forming a new, a new little town, new settlement and how it came together. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've seen it the whole series before, but I was I really liked it. So I'm going back to that now and. That's what I was. I just finished it last night. So, mm. you know, what, we, season. we finished here in, in Playa. We finished Bosch season one on Amazon Prime. And I, I got to say, like one one thing that I love to do is watch for watch shows or movies based on places that I currently live or used to live in. So I used to love watching New York based stuff and then Boston based stuff. And I, I just got into Bosch. And it's great. It is very much L.A. It is real L.A. It's not like, you know, these sound stages and, uh, you know, I, I know you watch NCIS and whatnot. But this 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 feels gritty and real. Um, it's a detective show on Amazon Prime. I, 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 I highly recommend it for anyone who's interested in kind of 
procedural yep. stuff that's a little bit darker and a little bit more involved, I, I highly recommend it. Now, we've been talking back and forth the last couple days of like stuff, classic shows to watch. So I got to know your top five right now. Top five shows. Go. Top five shows. Go. Deadwood, number five. Okay, so that's up there. Seinfeld, number four. <laughs> we have one in common. There you go. <laughs> Star Trek, the original. Star Trek? Number three. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Their five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, seek out new life, you're new talking, civilizations, talking to boldly go where Shatner no man Star has Trek. gone before. That is Gosh. my number three. Okay. My number two, The Sopranos. Okay. And number Just, one. Yeah. NCIS. I had a feeling you were going to say that. You're addicted to that show. It's a complete. It's a complete formula show. I mean, the for, the the episode, the formula really doesn't change episode to episode, but I think they have taken strides on. You know how they kill off certain characters, which I think other shows do not do on a basis where it you know becomes too predictable. Uh, I think the general themes, there are morals to the stories and to the episodes, and then just to me, of course, it's based on the Navy and uh, the theme shows they do every once in a while that shows the respect and honor for our military uh, all together and put that together in something I find very entertaining. That's okay. a tough combination to do. And, you uh, quote that show quite a lot, I will say. Yeah, it's it's you know again, it, and it's a lot of it. You know, Gibbs' rules. He's got fifty-one. Oh, uh, he had fifty. He's got 51, fifty-one. Fifty-one rules. That's yeah, too many. Got to follow the rules. Uh, all right, I'm going to give you my top five. There you go. Seinfeld. Oh, there because we go. You could pick up a random episode and not care what season or what happened in the episode before. Just. You just pick it up whenever. The West Wing, which is starting to show its age a little bit, but still really watchable on Netflix. Narcos. Uh, I, the first two seasons, I need to watch the third. I need to watch Narcos Mexico. I'm behind just on finished. that, but I love the first two seasons. We both agree on that. Yeah. Just finished Marco, uh, Narcos Mexico. Just finished it. It's. Uh, I think it keeps getting better. Okay. And then I've got the first two seasons of House of Cards. Oh, nice. Because I felt like it kind of went went off a yeah. cliff after that. And then my ultimate guilty pleasure was 24. Yeah. It ended on a cliffhanger every single week. It was just, it was completely farcical sometimes. The plot lines and the twists and the turns and Jack Bauer just asking, where's the bomb? You know, like all that stuff. But it was totally my guilty pleasure. I haven't seen Breaking Bad. I haven't seen Mad Men. It's probably on the list to try out during this little run, but that's my top five. Yeah, I, the House of Cards thing, I there's a comparison to me with the NCIS and that how, you know, the surprises of people being killed off, that that really gets you. Now, again, NCIS is, I think, they just, I was, I was, I signed up to go to their 400th episode celebration, but it was obviously had to be canceled. Uh, but, mm -hmm. uh, so there's, there's a lot of things, but uh, yeah, what the house of cards did in a couple of years was very impressive. Between all that, I think we've got a fair amount of viewer recommendations for, for TV shows. So what do you say we, we dive right in and start the podcast, shall we? 
Got it. All right, let's rock and roll. All right, it is Fox and Faust, the podcast from the Mark Hardy podcast loft in Playa Vista, California. And from where, which, what, where are you at in uh, Redondo Beach, Jim? I am at the Patrick O'Neill. Oh my gosh! You broadcast no studio in beautiful Redondo. Ah, Jimmy, I broke it. It's done. Patio. See, you, 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 he's been begging. He's been begging for a mention. And but he, he finally said, got it. He said yesterday he didn't want to be mentioned. So that's exactly why he went at it. Exactly. All right. Why why don't we dive right in here? Coming up, I want to hit on a couple of topics here. Um, One of the series that we saw on rerun this week from NBCSN, Kings Blackhawks in 2014. That is, you've told me, I don't know how many times, the best playoff series you've ever seen. Gretzky 802. That happened this week, back about a quarter century ago. And then Maybe a little bit of uh, diving into awards season. Uh, we've, we've got a couple of uh, thoughts on if the season were to end today, who would you pick for each award? But I want to start with um, earlier this week um, for that playoff series. I, I like I, I found myself watching it again, and I, I'm not that big into watching classic games when they come on, but I I couldn't help but be sucked into Game Seven. Uh, Kings Blackhawks 2014, and I, I had to go back and rewatch a whole bunch of the rest of the games that series because so much of what the you know the 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 lore around that run was okay in 2014 and even 2012 the Kings were a stalwart defensive team, lock it down, excellent goaltending, you know, quick wins the Con Smythe, but that was a high scoring series. You had five, four, six, two, like you had high scoring games in that series, and Game Seven was no exception to that. What were your takeaways from that that series? That's, I mean, the way I've explained it before is that the 2012 Stanley Cup, the Kings defended their way, and the 2014 they scored their way. I mean, they had to score way more than they ever expected to. I assume they'd go back and say, okay, yeah, they created some offense off of solid defense, but just in that series, to me, the nature was this, and uh, Keon, who he was. Uh, when you tweeted out it was going to be on, um, Keon was one of the gentlemen working and producing the post-game show for Chicago at the time. We shared the same truck. So during the games, during the Chicago series, I would be in the truck all game because all I'm doing is preparing for the post-game. And I'd be putting together clips and pulling clips of what we're going to show later. And Keon was producing for the Chicago. So we're in the same truck, though. We're only, you know. So through the first six games back and forth, we're just at each other. We're ripping each other. We're back and forth. We're chirping. Oh, we were going to win this. They're going to, and we're going back and forth. But the way the series developed, it seems like whoever took leads in games ended up losing the game. So I, I, I'll never forget in game seven, early on, Chicago takes a lead. And then I think it was Patrick Sharp's knuckleball goal that regained a two goal lead for them. And it was just after the Kings were getting back in, boom, this weird shot shouldn't have gone in, but it knuckled and it was weird and it dipped about two feet. Completely fluky goal. And early in the first six games, now we'd be, Keon would be all over me. He'd be, ah, they, he did not 
say a word. And I was doing the same thing. I mean, it got to the point where you just, whoever you thought was going to win ended up losing. And in that series, they knew to keep their lips shut because the Kings came back ultimately to win the game. Uh, but that, that was it, just the back-and-forth nature. And, yes, there was physicality to it, but I would have to say the free-flowing nature of that back-and-forth action. And I know I've described it the way I've described it as the most exciting series I've ever seen. I've heard that from people that have no contact with the Hawks or the Kings, and they feel the same way. You know, that I will say just watching that one game and the, you know, watching back highlights of the other games in that series, I, I might just sit down and watch and, you know, almost do like a film study of the whole thing because it, we hear so often about the new NHL, right? That it's high scoring and up tempo and whatnot. And that series felt a lot like what we're hearing today, that it was free flowing. Not that there was, you know, poor defensive coverage. It was just, it was a high quality series. There was a lot of quality scoring chances in that series. And no disrespect to either team's defense because they got there based on defense. I was impressed. I was impressed by how offensive those teams were. And I feel like the Kings got a bad rap those years. Well, they didn't score. They just defended. They could score their way through games. Plenty, plenty fine. Well, they had a good, they had a real, I mean, the, the thing about the Kings in those series, I go back to the blue line and how each pair seemed to have a stay-at-home guy and an offensive guy. So that that just opened up the offensive guy. That offensive guy, whichever pair it was, they just went. So there was a four-man attack. And it was never just three. It was four. And, again, the team was built that way specifically to, to give the green light to that D-man. But, you know, you know you've heard me say it before with Jeff Carter. I, I thought the best player in that series the, the room that was available blue line to blue line was was a little bit more wide open than most playoff series. And, you know, if you get that room to build up speed, then you're and then, you know, the game winning goal, geez, if I can remember it correctly. I mean, I, I remember, if I'm not mistaken, Dustin Brown jumping off the bench and being the first man in on the forecheck to end up creating a loose puck. And then it gets back from Martinez and and stole in front and all that stuff. But. Just the explosive. These guys were going a hundred miles an hour, and they were all out. And that that created the tempo for the series. That created with all the physicality, with all the great goaltending, with all the activation of the defensemen. It was just the overall tempo and the speed at which those games were played at. By the way, if you missed it. Uh, Kings fans, it'll be on again this Sunday on NBCSN, Game 7, between the Blackhawks and the Kings. They're also showing a couple of other Kings-related things. The outdoor game, I believe, is taking place this week. It may may be after we've taped this podcast where they've done it. And they also have that Wired series, which is pretty cool from that. So uh, plenty of Kings programming. Plus, Fox Sports West is is basically re-airing the seven-game win streak uh, as it happened over the next couple weeks. So uh, check check your listings on Fox Sports West for, for that as well. One, jump other- one more, Alex. Just yeah, yeah. game six at Staples Center. And just be- you can't have a great series without two great teams. Patrick Kane took over that game 
I mean, the Kings had the lead. You thought, and then he single-handedly, just every time he had the puck, he controlled. And especially in the third period, he was so instrumental. So just, just how the great players elevated their game. This week is also a historical week in terms of Wayne Gretzky, 802, passing Gordie Howe to become the league's all-time goal scorer. This happened 26 years ago this week. It, it was inevitable that this was going to happen, and Gordie Howe was in attendance, and Commissioner was there. What, what are your memories from that day, Jim? And, you know, I, I know that the the line, I, I love the line that Bob Miller used on this, Wayne Gretzky's record book is complete, right? He had everything that you could possibly have, and this completed it all. What, what are your memories from that day? Well, again, it, it's, it's, as you mentioned, the surrounding factor was we knew it was going to happen. Obviously, you can't pick the exact moment, but you know, you know it's going to happen. So there was not not as much suspense in the lead up to it. Uh, so when I look at it, to me, it was more the broadcast effect and how, as the analyst, I mean, I had to make sure. And Bob asked me to. He said every time Wayne got on the ice, I was to point down to the ice just to just to alert Bob that he's out there, just to make sure. And then for me, it's make sure I'm not even close to talking when Wayne's getting to a scoring position. You just, you know, we all have roles, right? And your role is to play, you're there to call the goals. And Bob's, you know, every once in a while, it happens five times a year, seven times a year, where the dumb analyst is talking when a goal goes in the net. Usually off a weird turnover, something happens weird, it hits something to go, then you, you're caught in the middle, you can't get out, and then... You screw up the call. So that was in the back of my mind. So uh, I was alerting Bob to make sure that he knew what Wayne's on the ice. And then basic silence from me the rest of that way to make sure I'm not going to talk if Wayne's going to score the goal. Now, it was a 15-minute ceremony that took place. Now, this is right in the middle of the game. This uh, this halted the game. Um, like... Has there ever been a scenario that that's yeah. crossed your mind where this might happen again? I mean, maybe when, if, if I should say, even though I've got a bet going on whether Ovechkin passes Gretzky in terms of total goals, but I'm like that. There's that's the only other thing I can think of that would pause a hockey game for a ceremony in the middle of it. We've seen it in baseball with home run chases, and it's a little bit easier to pause a baseball game. You're you're stopping a hockey game for a ceremony yeah. for 15 minutes. If I'm not mistaken, they did it for Gretzky's point total, too. They, they did, yeah. So that was, yeah, you know, and when Hank Aaron, that you know, that's the one I remember even yeah. more than the, the recent, you know, he ended the game, right? Right. I'm not mistaken. So, or maybe not. Uh, I remember fans I, jumping I on have, the field, I, so it might not end the game. the wrong person here. Yeah, I wasn't alive. I remember that. Uh, yeah, that's that's uh, that's interesting. So that's it's yeah, it's I think it had to be done. I don't think anyone had a problem with it, uh, especially because it's, you know, so interesting to me that Wayne's idol was Gordie Howe. And, you know, they played different positions. They played different styles. But to have Wayne break his idols record, that just that. 
in itself was fine, no problem whatsoever. Gordy's there, Gordy's following. It's that's that's a perfect stop the game. Fact that everybody was there helped that out, and I don't think we'll see anything like that again. If Alex Ovechkin breaks Wayne Gretzky's record, you'll probably see something like that. But there's nothing else that I can think of in terms of hockey records that would necessitate anything like that again. And maybe it'll happen, but you know, this stoppage is eating into you know 12 regular season games for Ovechkin to pile up more goals, and every single one counts. Hopefully, you know, they get a chance to, to finish the regular season in its entirety, but every single one counts for Ovechkin in that way. Uh, so that's. I know yeah, Lemieux and, and Brett Hall got close a couple times, but still to me, 92 goals in one season. Oh. Wayne, that's just. Yeah. That's psych. That's tough. That's and tough it didn't to think about it. Wow. It, like, it, it, I, I'm trying to think, like. What, what, what was the most recent one? Sixty something in a season? Yeah, and I think Mario got to eighty six, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I think uh, Brett Hall maybe at the same or eighty four, and that's you know when you think of it, that's pretty close. But then, of course, with Wayne, he's the all time oh yeah best passer, and yeah. he yet does the scoring too. So yeah, yeah, different era, but even so, still yeah, yeah, ri- just ridiculously. Have you ever it's- seen the eighty six Soviet Canadian series? I think it was like a Canada Cup, and it ended up being a best-of-three series. All three games ended up 6-5. Go back and look at that. That is – you want to talk about the you know the Kings-Chicago series? That series was 6-5 all three games. Incredible hockey. Mm. That's Alex, you should watch that. That was I, highly skilled. I will. Uh, enough about the past, and how about the present here? Uh, because we've got uh, this pause has given us the, uh, I guess, the ability to almost close the book on the season, right? Because we're, we're so close. We're at 70 games for the Kings completed, and most of the rest of the league is at 71, 72, uh, but they're all in that range. I mean, we've got a good body of work, and I think it's it's probably a good enough time for if this season did end today, let's pick up some awards here. Let, let's see if we're in agreement because I, I had a tough time as I was going through and looking at award by award. I had a really tough time singling out an individual winner. And that's not a cop-out on my end because I, I want to start with the Vesna Trophy. I want to start with goaltending here because this speaks to me of something that's changed recently in the NHL. The Vesna Trophy is given to the goalie judge to be the best at his position, right? Am I wrong in saying there are no standout, like, pure fire, this guy should win it? Are there no outstanding candidates this year that just jump out at you? You are exactly correct. And that'll be the last time I ever say that. (laughs) (laughs) So Tuka Rask leads the league in goals against average as of today. But number two is Jake Allen. Number three, Anton Hudobin. Number four, Darcy Kemper. Number five is Elvis Merzlikens. You're starting five to of see... the top seven. Yeah. Five of the top seven are backups. Yeah, so it's it's the which... it's the share. Now they're sharing. Now it's part of exactly. the normal situation where teams are looking, instead of looking for the ten million dollar goaltender, they're looking right. for one at six and one at four. And and they're looking to go fifty 32, 
they're looking to go 48, you know, 44, something, you know, whatever. My uh, math's a little out there. But, you know, just that's what they're looking to do. And, and that's that's what you're seeing there in those numbers. That's the thing that stands out to me. It, like 1A, 1B is now the strategy for most of these teams. But I'll give you my pick, Jim. And I want to see if we're aligned on this, too. Maybe we'll agree. My pick is Connor Hellebuck. He has played in 58 of Winnipeg's 71 games so far. And with a team that's just, their blue line has been ravaged both due to injuries and the fact that they couldn't make any roster moves with Dustin Bufflin in that situation, Hellebuck has basically had to carry the team the entire year. And I, I'm I'm looking at all these other names down the list. Yeah. He's the only one that, that kind of stands out to me and say, yeah, he kind of helped I mean, maybe he doesn't fit the exact category of judge to be the best at his position, but in terms of aptitude and having to carry the load, he's top of my list right now. Yeah, I'm going to run down very quickly, and and I'll preface it by when I select these, I do weight heavily to expectations. Uh, so that's what, so for me, Vasilevsky is number three at 35 wins. Number two is Ben Bishop, just because of all the things surrounding him. And my number one guy, uh, you know why I chose him? Why? Just for the Hellebuck. I figured that was going to happen. Yeah, it is <laughs> Connor Hellebuck. So I agree with you. I, 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 you know, the change in defense that they had, you know, some were, you know, free agents leaving, some, you know, the, the Dustin Bufflin thing, the, the, and then the way they started, the way they came around, and then you see what he, I, I yeah, Hellebuck's my guy. Yeah. I, I can't help but think that Tuka Rask will get heavy consideration because he has put together a great year in Boston. Um, yeah, but I that's have where my expectations, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I penalize him for it because he's on right. a great team, so I penalize him for that. Yeah, but it's unfair. I mean, still, put, still putting together a good year and yeah. on a team that's right now in the driver's seat for the president's trophy. Um, so I, those would be my two is Rask and, and Hellebuck. Are there any others that, that Darcy Kemper probably would have been the guy yeah, at numbers. the beginning of the year and then just injury. It's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the guy right there that, and again, you, you, you know, they have Ronta too, who still, I think yeah. he, he still qualifies in a lot of statistical categories, even though he hasn't played a lot too. And you, you get to that position where they're sharing again. Yeah, I, boy, I wonder if the season resumes and if somehow Arizona is able to get into the playoffs, because that weighs a bit on it, too. It's unfair to say, well, you know, you know, if your team didn't make the playoffs, you don't get consideration like many of these awards. But um, I'd still consider Darcy Kemper if he's able to will that team into the playoffs should the season resume, because he's he deserved it based on his body of work over the course of the year. Yeah, their team almost I mean. It, their downfall coincided with his injury. Yep, thousand percent. People are pinning that on Taylor Hall. You, you've been seeing these lately, right? You know, the, the, these posts were like, "Oh, their record before and after Taylor Hall." Well, that's almost directly <laughs> related to where Darcy Kemper got hurt. Kemper got hurt the very next game after they got Taylor Hall. It was right there, and that's why they're not in the playoff spot as of now. Let, let's move on here. Um, I, early on this season, you said it was John Carlson's Norris Trophy. Do you still believe that? I still believe it, and I still give it to him. And now I give it to him by the 
hair of his chinny chin chin. <laughs> uh, that that was run away early. What about like a Dougie Hamilton too? Like he yeah. his you know injured, so he, he just didn't play anywhere near enough games to be qualified. But Roman Yossi and Carlson are, are right there. And but I, I'm just again I'm going. I expected Washington to have a good season, but I think because of the struggles of a team that Nashville had, I'm not pinning it on Yossi at all. He's phenomenal, but I I just have to give the edge to Carlson. I wonder for a team like Nashville that's still in it, right? They're still on the cusp of the playoffs that they were kept in it because of Yossi. I've got Yossi. And I really liked him when when we saw him in January. And I, I I looked into just basic stats, not no advanced stats here, but just basic stuff. Third in the league in time on ice, second in points, ninth in plus minus. So he's getting the lion's share of the minutes for Nashville. He is on ice for more goals than he is goals against, and he's putting up a lot of points, which I think has factored more into. Uh, Norris Trophy consideration now than maybe in years past. I, I would pick Yossi, and I, I know we should think about Carlson and the fact that he had a phenomenal start to the year and it most likely will be able to carry that to the finish line. But I, I, I got to say, like in terms of a guy that I, I, when we saw him in January, he's, he's the type of player that scares you. When he's on the ice, that he could do whatever he wanted with the puck and he could defend whoever he wanted when he didn't have the puck. It, that just, it seemed to me Yossi was that in that much control. Well, don't use that criteria then in games only against the Kings. That's true. Because I think <laughs> Carlson true. would jump right to the top on that one. That's true. But yeah. yeah I, I'm going to go again with my the Fox standard prerequisite, which is expectations. Who do you think about when you think about Washington? Ovechkin, Car- and uh, you, you've got Wilson up front. You've got Kuznetsov, like and Backstrom, all these yeah. forwards. Yeah. Not, yeah. So now when I throw Carlson in, that to me, that's why that's why he gets the edge. Okay, fair enough. All right, Selkie Trophy. Is it as simple as Giroux or Bergeron? This does not feel like there's much of a a sexy argument this year for one player over another. I think Ryan O'Reilly with the St. Louis comeback last season got a lot of consideration being the, the top center on that team. I can't pick out a guy that's all that interesting to talk about in the Selkie conversation this year. Maybe with Philadelphia's run that was a little unexpected, Giroux gets the edge, but I, I don't know. I, I can't really come up with a compelling argument either way. Yeah, it's, a, it's always a tough one. I go to the origination of the award. It has evolved into the best point-scoring centerman who doesn't get the MVP. Hmm. That's what it's evolved into. I go the other way. And I have three candidates, and there's only one that fits the criteria of point score. My third guy is Jordan Stahl in Carolina because I think his role now is shut down. That's, again, Selkie is defensive forward, so his role is shut down. Number two, I do stay with, O'Reilly. I put him at the top. I look at his numbers. I look at what he does for the team. But to me, I'm going to, I'm way off the board. I'm going to Nick Bonino. In, Bonino? Yep, yeah, in Nashville. I think his role, 
You've got Duchesne, who's at a you know centerman. You've got Johansson, who's a centerman. All these points, all these, all. These. And then I look at Benino. I look at how he chips in. I look at his plus minus. I look at his faceoffs when he's on the ice. So again, I try to target mine to the origination of the Selkie Award, which is defensive forward. So I almost eliminate the top scores right away before I go to select my guy. So Benino this year is at 52% face-offs. I mean, he's chipping in a little bit offensively. And I, like, is, he, is it possible, too, that it's one of those where because you're not talking about him too much, he's just there, he's just solid, he just does the job for you? I think it's because the, the criteria used to select the Selkie no longer, to me, lives up to what the origination of it was. So... And I'd say I have no problem. You know, Kopi won it a couple times. But again, again, with Kopi, I think you look at the underlying numbers, you can make the argument for him every single year. Uh, But I think it's I think it's evolved into something that it was not meant to be when it was originated. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, now here's where I want to really dive into a discussion. And this is, I think, going to be high level on what we value in terms of uh, when we when we're looking at general managers and how teams are constructed. Because uh, next week, I think we'll do Hart Trophy and like the league-wide uh, you know, player awards. But I, I, the last one I want to cover here is GM of the Year. Because I've got, a, I've got an off-the-board guy. I, I want to hear yours first. Okay. Because I want to hear what you value in terms of general manager and what a team should be constructed around, especially given where the standings are right now. So GM of the Year, who do you have? I have my third selection is Ken Holland. The Edmonton okay. Oilers. And he's on and my board. Yep. A lot has to do with his selection as coach. So that's part of his job. Uh, making and fitting pieces into what's going to happen and the Neal acquisition and things of that sort. Uh, you know, he's got the two best players in the league or top players in the league or two of the top five best, whatever you want to do with Dreisaitl and, and, and McDavid. But uh, I give him there. Uh, I have a soft spot for my second pick, and that's Brian McClellan, my old roomie in Washington, uh, a team that's maintained. It's, it's you know, right at the top of the league there. Uh, not a lot of changes, but maybe that's why, you know, he, because they've won recently, he's had to massage the salary cap, you know, so he's done a good job there. And yeah. to me, uh, the GM of the year is uh, Kevin Sheveldayoff of the Winnipeg mm-hmm. Jets. Because right. I, I don't yeah. know if anyone was put into a situation that he was put into. You know, he has a decision in the free agents that leave. But the injuries and then the defection, I'm going to call it, of Bufflin, your top guy. Take your number one defense off of any other team in the league and can they survive? He's... He's made a lot of little ins and out moves, and uh, for that reason, I give him my GM of the year. And they're in a playoff spot right now. Uh, I, I'm, I'm with you on Ken Holland being on my board, but I wouldn't vote for him. You can't go wrong with Jim Rutherford in Pittsburgh. All the puzzle pieces with their injuries, they had Crosby out, they had Malkin out, they had Letang out for a period of time, I believe. So like all the different injuries they've had to deal with, plus they've... Uh, had to mix and match other pieces with injuries up and down the lineup. Uh, but you know what? I'm going to go off the board with this one, and that's why I wanted to bounce off of you. I'm going with Kyle Dubas 
and I'm not looking at it necessarily for, you know, having, okay, to navigate one injury in particular or having to navigate one roster thing in particular. I'm looking at it as he had to weather the pressure of that market throughout the entire year. He had to basically have the gumption to replace Mike Babcock, a guy with that reputation in that market. He had to dodge salary cap landmines all season long. He had to get through that emergency backup situation and not hit the panic button and try to do anything crazy to try to shore that up. And yet Toronto, after all these ups and downs, they're still in a playoff spot. And I look at that and say, that takes a lot of courage and a lot of um, uh, long-term thinking to to be a general manager in that market and not hit the panic button when everyone around you thinks they can do a better job than you at being the general manager of that team. I wasn't on my list, but for the argument that was just presented, I think that you presented it very well. I agree with your points on sticking with what you believe in, what he believes in. I think that's very important. I know he's considered one of the fancy stat type of guys, and now everyone has that, but he was one of the few early guys that had that, so he had to weather that storm too. Even with the stories that came out later about Mike Babcock, I'm not quite on the same page with him in that decision, so I I, I really think that Mike is is the guy. Uh, but. So- no, so well, well, think, well so you think even with the stories that came out that that Babcock that that wasn't necessarily the best move to to get rid of them. Yes. And he had all the reasons in the world to get rid of them. Uh, you know, the Marner story is, I think, indefensible. But uh, bigger picture, taking everything into consideration, uh, Mike Babcock. I, I believe would still be there, but you know, he, he definitely, if he knew, if he knew that story, which maybe he did before he fired him, then he gets more points on, on your selection. Um, as far as the chronology of, I'm aware of that story was not mm. out there until after the fact, but I could be wrong there too. Yeah. And not to, not to go too headlong. Cause we're going to talk about, um, our Jack Adams picks next week, but, um, I think for Winnipeg, and the, re- the the reason why I didn't go with Kevin Dayoff is I, I feel, as much as the little moves that he made, I feel, I feel like so much of their success is predicated on Paul Maurice's style of coaching. You want to talk about a steady hand and seeing the big picture. I, I really feel like he did a lot of the, the yeoman's work in Winnipeg of, of getting that team to, to weather that whole situation. Yeah, I agree, but I also... Look to the Canadian market again in Winnipeg, and I can bring you back examples of how they were calling for Maurice's head. Yeah, that's true, yeah. But Shovel Day Off stu- stood up and, and signed him to an extension. So yep. that's that's where that's part of the uh, you know standing your ground, getting back to you know didn't have a lot of interaction with Jerry West when he was with the Lakers, but the ones I did, he he was he was the boss. He was single-minded. I'm sure he took in a lot of opinion and went around and got all the information he could and compiled it together before he made his decisions. But when he did, he stuck by it. When he made a mistake, he would still 
The mistake would not change his fundamental foundation. It would just be, it didn't work. Let's find another way to get back to my foundation. So I think Shovel Day Off kind of fits a little bit there. All right. And next week we will dive into Hart Trophy and uh, Jack Adams Trophy, all those kind of uh, awards. Yeah. So we'll, we'll continue on with that. I want to get uh, to some listener questions here. Uh, as always, we get a, a really good um, set of uh, questions from, from folks. Uh, let's start with Connor who asks, uh, what are your pregame rituals on game day? Like, as a player, you probably had some, but as a broadcaster, Jim, do, do you have, like, anything? I know the ice cream is, we, we've covered that multiple times on here, and I know you're missing your Staples Center ice cream right now. Is there, is there anything else that's part of your ritual or routine uh, that, that you can't do without to get yourself ready for a broadcast? I had way more when I was a player, uh, which now that I look back at and were foolish, 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 and only, well, again, I was dealing with anxiety and trying to figure out ways. So what you do is you develop superstitions and that keeps your mind off of things. And, but, uh, you know, if I would do it again, I would probably seek more professional help and get a more uh, step-by-step approach to how to handle that type of stuff. But, um, I, I'm very routine oriented. I like to be on a timeline, like to eat by this certain time, like to, you know, be at practice at this certain time, do my notes at certain time. So that's, I guess, more routine than superstition. Uh, but that fits in. Uh, I do enter certain doors at certain times or don't go into certain doors at certain times. So I still have those weird things in my, my back, uh, in the back of my mind. Uh, but all I would say there is, yes, very regimented as far as what I do as far as preparation, when I do that preparation, when that preparation has to be completed. Uh, to me, a lot of my game day is just going through things in my mind because I like to think that the preparation is done well in advance of that so that I can just sort out things. But then you get into back-to-back game situations, and sometimes that falls apart. Yeah. Uh, back-to-backs are killer in terms of routine because a lot of times you're playing catch-up in terms of preparation. Um, I, I mean, as much as I can, and I'll, I'll agree with you, it's a lot preparation in advance before you arrive at game day. And I feel a lot less anxiety of being ready for a game um, when I have all my notes done in advance. I'll also go through the routine. I have to handwrite. Some people, some broadcasters can have it all typed out or um, can you know do their entire thing by hand. I only want to write out goals assistant points just to know okay who's top scorer who's middle of the pack who hasn't scored a goal yet this year um just to have that ready otherwise i like to have everything laid out in as small uh setup as possible if you've seen my note sheets you know that they're <laughs> very 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 small type yes uh you have to if it, once once I get a little bit older, Jim, I'm I'm gonna need to <laughs> cut down on notes because I'm gonna have to increase the font size. I don't think I can stay at seven point font for <laughs> the rest of time. I'm uh, at sixteen. <laughs> okay, so now I know where I'm going. Uh, but yeah, I, I like to. The only thing I handwrite is just that and handwriting lines. I've also gone through the routine now of memorizing lineups. Um, instead of I used to try to do it well in advance and walk into the arena. Okay, I've memorized them. Instead, now I'm doing it more like an hour before puck drop so that they are freshest. So I'll write down the the line combinations as they are. 
and try to uh, just by numbers and then try to write the names in there so that I have all the names and numbers memorized. Sometimes when we were playing um, Ottawa, that, that game before the shutdown, I, we were talking to each other like, can you recognize half the roster because they had traded away so many guys? <laughs> like Half the roster, we didn't even know who these guys were. So that was a little bit of a struggle uh, in terms of uh, getting those names and numbers down. It's, it's less important for you because you, you can look at them kind of uh, after the fact, but I, I found myself in that game five or six times just looking at my sheet. Who is that? Oh, it's 39? Who's that? Yeah, it's tough. It's Again, I, I don't we have different jobs, so I, I don't yeah. spend as much time with identification. Uh, uh, but certainly as the play-by-play guy, you have to do that. So a couple of different uh, users asked um, in different ways, how are players staying in shape under these circumstances? I know the NHL has been posting videos of guys um, you know, juggling toilet paper or you know, playing with their dogs in the yard. But like, I, I think this is along the lines almost of how strength and training has evolved a little bit because I, I, I get the sense trainers um, and especially strength trainers have been focusing more on body weight and flexibility than they have in years past. And I think players are okay. They're not going to be able to put on a ton of weight unless you have a home gym, but I guess they're staying in shape okay with body weight and other exercises of that nature. I think that has been a... Huge change in the way the NHL and pro sports looks at fitness and conditioning and the reliance on equipment has gone way down. So now to even a cardio workout, I mean, you can get it without a bike, without a, an elliptical. You can, and it's all just, you know, movements that don't need any equipment. So if there's any time of the fitness evolution timeline right now would allow the players in the NHL to come back quicker than in any other time before because they no longer rely on those types of things. Uh, I know that they can get it done without any equipment. If only we knew those hokey fitness videos from the 1980s would come true about yeah. 35 years later. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, like. that's what I've been doing. I mean, I've, I've been doing a lot on TV. I just go to YouTube and I click in, give me a low, I need low impact because of my hips and my knees, uh, but I want cardio. And I say, no way you can't. Well, yeah, you can. Mm -hmm. After 45 minutes, an hour doing it, you can. There's no question about that. So uh, Marcus Moshe, one of my good buddies, asks, uh, when are we going to see a legit amateur suit up as an emergency backup goalie? Totally unrelated. When are the Kings going to make me their emergency backup goalie? Well, Marcus, I'm afraid you're a sieve, so you're not going to be a backup goalie in the NHL anytime soon. But I, I remember, you know, when when that whole amateur or when the whole emergency goalie thing ended, and the GMs talked about it at their meetings, there was no change. I I don't know about you, Jim, though. I I get the sense that teams might make the process of selecting their emergency backup a bit more. Oh, stringent. I know the Kings did a, a tryout, but I, I don't know. I get the sense teams are going to take it a little more seriously than they had in the past. What's your take on that? Yeah, we've discussed this before. I know it's been a discussion for even before the uh, Carolina Maple Leaf situation this year. Uh, it was on the radar of general managers. It is really one of those most you, to come up with a solution. There's a lot of times when you throw a question out there. 
10 answers right away. This one, it's a tough one, but they are thinking about it. Uh, I, I would think that they would probably make sure that that selection is actually actively working out in a certain amount of times a week. What's the level of the league they're playing and that type of stuff. Now, I'm less familiar with this. I don't, I don't know if you have the answer. Do you know if teams have the capability of, because right now emergency goalies aren't paid. They're just basically given tickets to the game and you show up, you, you know, you're there, you're ready to go if need be. I, I wonder if some teams, even though it wouldn't be mandated, would put guys under some sort of retainer. Like, we'll pay you 30000 or 50000 to be our you know, practice goalie, essentially. Billy Ranford essentially does that job for the Kings right now. If they need an extra practice goalie, the, the former Conn Smythe winner suits up and stacks the pads, and it's, it's fun to watch in, in Kings practice. But I wonder if more teams are going to go in that direction of having a, a, a extra goalie on retainer who can't play, he's non-roster, but I, I, I'm not as familiar with the, the rules and regulations with regard to practice players. Yeah, I, I think that was in discussion with the GMs. Again, even before this season started, I, I'm pretty yeah. much aware that it was in discussion. But that's where you get to the stumbling block. Do you have to travel those guys now? Do they go on the road yeah. with you? If you do, then you need to pay them more money because their lifestyle, all those types of things uh, come into it. Uh, does it count against the cap? Uh, it just a lot of variables, but um, they're thinking about it. it. It is so rare. But I guess when we get to that point where, yeah. you know, it determines a playoff spot, then then you really start to think about it. I think the odds were like or the the amount of times it was like one out of seven thousand games where the, it actually had to take place. So I think we're OK with the, the system as it currently stands. Here's one from uh, uh, at the history guy. Who do you think the stoppage helps or hurts in terms of uh, various prospects or veteran players uh, making strides? So I, I could see this question being an interesting one for a guy like Alex Turcott, who is expected to join the Ontario Reign, just finished his one and only year at the University of Wisconsin and was expected to join the Reign after signing with the Kings. Now he has no ice time, no uh, weight room time, no nothing. It, does this hurt guys who uh, would otherwise be coming either out of junior or somewhere else and be expected to, to step up and get a little bit of ice time or because they're, they're young enough, they, they might be able to just take a couple weeks and, <laughs> and get through it. Yeah. I'll, I'll just keep this one simple. There's no question. It hurts the guys that are on the entry and hurts the guys that are near the end. Mm. Ice time will be hard to come by for a little while and until things loosen up just a little bit. All right. One last one, and I'm going to end this with a non-hockey one. Joel asks, Rolling Stones or Beatles? Oh, that's easy for me. Not even close. Are you making me guess? <laughs> I'm, I could pause. <laughs> uh, I'm going to guess the Stones. That's how much you do not know me. What? Really? I went to a Stones concert once at the Meadowlands, and I would have not gone if the tickets were not complimentary to me <laughs> via NHL radio and Howie Denneroff, who happened to stand, stand, stumble into a couple. 
Um, that's uh, no, I, I'm I a hey, I love the energy of Mick Jagger live performance again. That that's where it differs. Had a way more chance to see the Stones live. Didn't have a chance to see the Beatles live. But when I take a look at the entire picture and the entire the the uh, the, the work that was put in. Uh, it's tough, right? It's a tough comparison because the Stones have stayed together for so long. That in itself is phenomenal. But then, isn't it also so impressive that the Beatles today are still as possible, still as popular as they are, and they weren't really together that long? Mm, yeah. I so I've gone back and forth because originally I was more Beatles because it was. When you're growing up, those songs are a little bit catchier and, I guess, more timeless in some respects. Uh, their their whole library, that is. But as I've as I've grown older, I I appreciate the Rolling Stones a little more for pushing the envelope and um, staying together, which helps too. But just that their sound, I think, is a little bit more. I don't, I don't want to say complex because the Beatles, for when they first came out, were revolutionary in terms of the sound that they brought to the table. I just, I, I like that energy, right? I, I like uh, the edginess from from Mick Jagger and uh, the whole group. I, I, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go well, with the Stones. I'll, I'll bring it full circle. Like you, it's difficult to compare because again, one of my top selections for TV show was Star Trek. Well. Mm. Alex, when that came out, that was revolutionary as far as the special effects. Can you imagine now? It's not even close with, with <laughs> yeah. CGI and all that stuff. You can't even. But back then, it was. I mean, I remember story. Uh, Dave Taylor's daughter uh, came over to do. She had to stay with us, Susie and I, for a weekend. And she was doing a project, and her project was on the first Star Wars. So she had to watch it and, you know, comment it and critique it and review it. While well, she'd already seen a couple of the newer ones. She went back and, this is, this is awful. This is, you know, because the special effects were nowhere near. Yes. what. So it was tough to give an opinion based on what you know now compared to what was available then. And I think your point's well taken with the stones there and, the Beatles. The more I go back and listen to and see re retrospectives on the Beatles, that has given me more of an appreciation. Mm. Just to listen to them, I know a couple have passed away. Talk about, you know, how they wrote the songs and, and you know those types of things. So just, yeah, the energy of the Stones is in concert is is good. It's phenomenal. Yeah. We all wish like we could dance like Mick Jagger, right? Oh gosh, well, yeah. Get a couple of beers in you. I think you can dance like him just fine, Jim. Uh, what, what, what do we say we end on that note? And uh, next week we'll have uh, we'll have more on kind of end of season awards if the season were indeed to end. And uh, we'll we'll continue to, to work in some listener questions. Uh, this this was this was good. I, and and I, I will end on this as well. Last week was a little bit cathartic for both of us. Last week was tough. It was I think we were both dealing with the shock of this whole quarantine and stay at home situation. I don't know about you. I am feeling a lot better. This week, I'm, you know, I'm getting out of the house. I'm walking a lot. It's, you know, the weather's been more cooperative. I'm, I'm feeling a heck of a lot better this week than I was last week. 
Yeah, I think a lot of the basis for me is certainly uncertainty, which, of course, drives anxiety. Uh, and I think there are still a lot of things that are more uncertain. But I think now it is very clear what the problem and the issue is and the challenge is. So that, to me, just makes things a little bit easier to handle. Yep, we'll get through it. And uh, we uh, we encourage everybody at home to uh, continue to practice safe do- social distancing and, and we'll all get through it together. Uh, so we'll see you next week for a new episode. Keep hitting that subscribe button. All the King's Men continues to put out new episodes as well. And uh, we uh, look forward to seeing you again next time. Bye, everybody. <laughs>